0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History
3: Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Debellina Truck Reboarding. And today we're going to be talking about John James Audubon, who of course is the famous creator of Birds of America, in addition to being a naturalist, a great outdoorsman, and it's easy to also believe that Audubon might have been the founder of the Audubon Society. It still has his name. It's still the biggest name in bird conservation today, but that is not the case at all.
4: Now, Audubon had actually been dead for more than 30 years when George Bird Grinnell, the Society's founder and, and an admirer of Audubon, started publishing articles critiquing plume hunting in his Hunting and Fishing magazine, and that was in the late 1880s, and a craze for those huge feathered hats known as Gainsborough hats was decimating North American bird populations, especially shore and water birds. And we
3: talked a little bit about Gainsborough hats in our Real Moriarty episode and the, the portrait of the Duchess of Devonshire, sort of starting that trend again for these huge hats, that, but it really was uh, affecting water birds, shore birds, um, because plume hunters were killing them for their feathers. So Grinnell's publication didn't last that long. But a few years after it shut down, a socialite named Harriet Hemingway decided to that she was going to pick up the torch. So she and her cousin poured through the Boston Blue Book, you know, all the top names in Boston society, and noted down every fashionable lady who wore these plumes. And instead of writing them scathing letters, like, give up your plumes, the cousins instead invited these feather-wearing ladies to join the newly formed Massachusetts Audubon Society. And by the turn of the century, several of these state-level Audubon societies banded together, still keeping that name, and consequently Audubon's name became synonymous not only with his own work, Birds of America, but with American conservation. And between
4: these two heavy legacies, though, a lot of the fascinating details and the contradictions about Audubon's life kind of got overlooked. For one thing, he was Fine living in the woods for weeks, meeting Native Americans and fur trappers, or teaching planter sons how to dance and play violin. So, you know, very disparate sort of hair. things. Yeah. He was also a real Daniel Boone type who would obsess about his hair. And he and his wife had this cinematic love story, but they lived apart for years.
3: And while he prided himself on his very accurate drawings, he also loved a good tall tale, too. I mean, that sort of fits in with the Daniel Boone persona, I think. But he did have all of these different sides of his personality going on.
4: So over the course of two episodes, we'll be talking about Audubon's life with input from Michael Inman, curator of the Rare Books Division at the New York Public Library, on Audubon's technique and and the creation of Birds of America. But first, we want to kind of introduce you to the contradictions, surprises, and adventure that actually started really early on for Audubon. In fact, he wasn't even born John James Audubon, was he?
3: Surprise number one. So throughout his life, Audubon would tell all sorts of stories about his birth, really outlandish kinds of things. Like he was born in Louisiana to a French hero of the American Revolution, or maybe he was even a lost heir to the French throne. Really out there stories. But the truth was that he had been born April 26, 1785, as Jean Rabin to a French ship's captain and planter named Jean Audubon and his French chambermaid mistress in what is today Haiti. And Audubon's mother died just a few months after he was born. I think she had never really adjusted well to the climate there. But when the Haitian Revolution started brewing, Audubon Sr. sold off as much of his plantation land as he could and squirreled Jean and his half sister Rose out of the country and back to France in 1791, get them out before the revolution happened. And to avoid complications, too, from Rose's mother being mixed race, Jean Audubon pretended that both kids had the same French-born mother. So the sort of lies about the kids' background
0: started almost immediately. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year
4: Once they were back home, Jean's wife Anne welcomed the kids with open arms and raised them as her own. And when the terror reached them in 1793 and threatened their lives and their property, they tried to secure Jean and Rose's inheritance by officially adopting them. So Jean Raban became Jean-Jacques, or Fougere. Fougere actually means fern, and they chose that name to handle the revolutionary authorities who didn't like saint names. Didn't like
3: the name Jean-Jacques, perhaps.
4: So after the terror, the Audubons relocated to a country house where Jean-Jacques learned birds' names from his father, and a family friend instructed him in taxidermy and anatomy. He explored the marshes of Loire also. But at 18, with the possibility of conscription into Napoleon's army, Jean-Jacques was packed off to America by
3: his father. So Audubon Sr. owned this 284 acre farm called Mill Grove outside of Philadelphia, where one of his tenants had recently discovered a vein of lead. So Jean Audubon hoped that his son might go there, check out this discovery, and be able to manage the farm and make some money on his own, too, because the family's fortunes had obviously taken a hit between the Haitian and the French revolutions. But John James was not that great at running a large farm. He was more interested in pretty much much everything else you could be interested in. He loved clothes, dancing, music, socializing. He was incredibly popular with his friends and neighbors. He was considered quite handsome. According to PBS, one of his Pennsylvania neighbors wrote, quote, a handsomer man I never saw. But he also really loved being outside too and watching birds. And Will Bakewell, who was Audubon's future brother-in-law, gave a really good picture of Audubon's natural history loving life at this time.
4: On entering his room, I was astonished and delighted to find that it was turned into a museum. The walls were festooned with all kinds of birds' eggs, carefully blown out and strung on a thread. The chimney piece was covered with stuffed squirrels, raccoons, and opossums, and the shelves around were likewise crowded with specimens, among which were fishes, frogs, snakes, lizards, and other reptiles, Besides these stuffed varieties, many paintings were arrayed on the walls, chiefly of birds. He was an admirable marksman, an expert swimmer, a clever writer, and was notable for the elegance of his figure and the beauty of his features. Besides other accomplishments, he was musical, a good fencer, danced well, and had some acquaintance with ledger domain tricks, worked in hair, and could plate willow baskets. So... (laughs) multi too busy
3: working hair to, uh, <laughs> to manage the farm but Audubon soon fell in love with his neighbor's daughter Lucy Bakewell who actually came from the Erasmus Darwin family um, he was Charles's grandfather and she was a really talented lady too she was an avid writer she read a lot she was a pianist so Lucy and Audubon married and sold that farm and moved on to Louisville Kentucky where Audubon opened up a general store, and really reveled in all of these hunting and drawing opportunities that were suddenly available to him in what was basically a frontier town at the time, or pretty close to a frontier town. So Audubon had been sketching birds for years and years, but at this point, his studies really began in earnest. He wasn't a great illustrator, though, yeah. And according to the PBS documentary on Audubon, Drawn from Nature, he even called his flat-looking birds, quote, crippled. So he had some improvements to make.
4: Yeah, so the first thing we wanted to ask Michael Inman about were these early drawings, and here's what he had to say.
5: His early work was um, far more traditional. Uh, he, he initially modeled himself on several of the other leading ornithologists of, of that time, um, in particular... Um, there was a gentleman, uh, an English ornithologist, Mark Catesby, who had produced uh, a book called The Natural History of the Carolinas, Florida, and the Bahama Islands. And and Catesby was probably the first um, ornithologist who really focused on uh, certainly North America. And and Audubon was familiar with his work and the work of others. And his early work did sort of fall into that vein of just uh, being rather static and traditional. Uh, It was only sort of later, uh, especially after he he met uh, an ornithologist named Alexander Wilson, um, who was in the process of publishing a book called American Ornithology. Uh, And uh, Wilson, uh, he just had a chance meeting with Wilson. Wilson was traveling, selling subscriptions to his work. He met Wilson and viewed his work and was very impressed with it. But after Wilson left, uh, a, a friend and colleague of Audubon said to him, you know, your work is much, much better um, and lifelike uh, than Wilson's is. And I think it was from that moment on that he really saw that he had some unique gift to, to really depict birds in a lifelike manner. And he began, I think, from that sort of that point on, really pushing the envelope as far as how the birds could be depicted.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year
4: So not long after this chance meeting with Alexander Wilson, Audubon, Lucy, and their growing family relocated to the even more remote Henderson, Kentucky, to run a general store there. And this seemed like one of the happiest periods in Audubon's life. He and Lucy would swim across the Ohio River and back for morning exercise, and she would garden and keep an elegant home filled with her family's antiques from England. And his business partner would run the store, and Audubon himself would stock the store and hunt for provisions. And this is also when he honed the technique that allowed him to recreate birds so realistically on the page. A lot of bird lovers though, we'll just say up front, are a bit (laughs) horrified when they learn that to do this, Audubon had to kill the birds that he drew. He'd head out with a shotgun, bag a bird that he was interested in, and then immediately ready it for sketching. And Michael told us a little more about Audubon's system in doing this.
5: And how he he sketched them was rather innovative for the time. He devised a system of of uh, wires and and boards and so forth, basically a little contraption where he could then rig the birds up in, in the lifelike poses that he had observed uh, when he was out in the woods or swamps or wherever he may have been. And he would then sketch them in these very lifelike dynamic poses, which is something that really had not been done uh, until that time, until he began doing that. Generally, the the artists, the ornithologists who were sketching birds or depicting birds in books up until that point uh, tended to depict them in very sort of static poses, um, in profile or uh, certainly not with any sort of dynamic uh, aspect or motion uh, implied in, in the artwork. Uh, but Audubon really wanted to capture that, you know, the birds as they had appeared to him when he was observing them so he he did work out this system where he could attach wires and and you know manipulate the birds so that even though they were dead at that time they still appeared very lifelike to him as he was then working on his watercolors to um to depict them uh, he did run up against the problem, though, in certain cases, especially when he was in very um, hot climates such as the, the lower Mississippi valley, that some of these specimens would begin to decompose rather quickly, so he had to be very quick, uh, you know go out, shoot the birds, get back to wherever it was that was his home base, and very quickly draw them or paint them um, before they began to sort of rot before his eyes so it was a It was a very sort of hurried process, and he was constantly on the move. He was very much driven to depict these birds um as, as in as life like a manner as possible
3: So when you look at Audubon's images, it's easy to see how these gridded, pinned, and freshly dead birds offered a whole lot more over the traditional technique of the time, which was to uh, kill a bird, skin it, preserve the skin with arsenic, and then stuff it with rope, and then finally illustrate it. But, you know, Audubon knew that not only could he position them in more lifelike ways when they were freshly dead, but he even knew that the color of a bird's feathers would start to change within just 24 hours of its death. It's worth noting, too, though, that he didn't waste anything. He didn't draw these birds and then just toss them aside. According to Richard Rhodes in Smithsonian Magazine, after he was done sketching and supposing the bird wasn't decomposing too badly, as Michael mentioned, Audubon would then dissect it. And he would take very careful anatomical notes on what he saw. And then because he was often out in the wilderness and didn't have anything else to eat, he would eat the bird and describe its taste in his field journals, and these are all things that eventually became part of his work.
4: Officially, though, Audubon was still a businessman, not an illustrator for his career, but after the Panic of 1819, his businesses, which at this point included a mill also in addition to the general store, they started to turn south. So he was desperate for cash, and so at this point he tried to call in a loan to Samuel Bowen, but Bowen wouldn't pay up, and this started a kind of an argument between the two in which Bowen attacked Audubon, hitting him several times before Audubon stabbed Bowen and ultimately injured him. He was found not guilty of this assault, but ended up being put into the Louisville jail for debt, where he declared bankruptcy, and ended up seeing all of his possessions sold off, including Lucy's heirlooms. So you can imagine how that would have been for their family at that time. Even Audubon's precious paintings were put up for sale, but nobody wanted them, so he he ended up getting to keep those. Fortunately,
3: he was able to keep those. But to add to their troubles, this bankruptcy and all of that, the Audubons, who had two healthy sons, lost two baby girls at this time. And It was clearly time for a career change at this point. Audubon was not cut out to be a businessman. And so he decided to go to work for a museum in Cincinnati, kind of similar to the one that we discussed in the P.T. Barnum episode, like a curiosity museum filled with a jumble of natural history and cultural history items. And at that museum in Cincinnati, Audubon practiced his taxidermy and was really encouraged in his art, too, encouraged in this project he had started working on sort of unwittingly. So in 1820, frustrated by not getting regular paychecks from his museum job, but feeling pretty inspired nevertheless, he and one of his drawing students, Joseph Mason, set out for New Orleans, and he didn't have much money again. Those paychecks weren't coming through. So he bartered their boat passage in exchange for his hunting skills and made it down to New Orleans.
4: So Audubon had a new goal, and that was to paint Every bird in America, life-size. By 1821, Lucy and the kids joined him down in New Orleans, and he'd paint portraits and teach planters' kids how to dance, fence, or ride, and she opened up a school of deportment and piano. His artistic style also continued to evolve during this period. He His paintings started to include more action, and the scenes were more like the tableau that he helped create at the Cincinnati Museum, which meant that they had realistic backgrounds and featured natural habitats.
3: Not just a bird on a twig, essentially. Right.
4: Right his work was mostly done in watercolor but he'd also outline feather edges in pencil so the pieces would really glint like actual birds.
3: Yeah, and all of this drawing obviously meant more travel too. He was, after all, trying to paint the birds of America even though Louisiana was obviously filled with birds. So that required a lot of roaming and we asked Michael some about how Audubon knew what to look for and where to go because I think that was what fascinated me most about this project. How would you know what you were going to do. Here's what he had to say.
5: Well, Audubon uh, was something of an autodidact. He taught himself about ornithology. Um, he, as I said, he was familiar with the work of others, um, the ornithologists of that time. So he had a fairly good handle on the various species that were then known and what their habitat was, the range of their habitat. Uh, but he also had a very keen eye and was able to discern new species, um, ones that had not yet been recorded. And so he tried to cover as much territory, um, literally, um, geographically, uh, as possible. And so he he moved from the southern swamps of Louisiana, uh, he traveled throughout the southeastern United States, Florida, the Carolinas, uh, up to um, uh, Maritime Canada, the coast there, Newfoundland, uh, and along the Ohio Valley, trying to to capture birds uh, in as many different geographic areas of the country as possible. And he was very successful at that. He identified a number of new species. On occasion he misidentified species. Sometimes he thought he had identified a new spe- uh, a new type of bird when in fact um, it was something that was already known, um, but in many cases he did identify new uh, species of birds.
4: So by 1824, Audubon felt like he had enough drawings to actually start publishing. But getting the attention his work deserved proved a lot more difficult than he expected. So next time, we're going to kind of talk about that process of starting to get his work published and the very different receptions that he received in America and abroad and how that Daniel Boone persona of his that we were kind of giggling about before really finally paid off.
3: It proved to be a blessing and a curse almost. So, it did. um, yeah, there's a lot more to talk about Audubon, but that'll be next time. In the meantime, if you want to send us a note, maybe, um, about your favorite plate from Birds of America perhaps you could email us at historypodcast at discovery.com and we're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we're on Facebook.
4: And if you just can't wait till part two and you want to learn a little bit more about some of the topics related to what we're discussing now, we have a lovely article called How the Audubon Society Works it was written by our own Sarah Doughty and you can find it by searching on our website and that's at www.